Hello, my name's Nick Cater and you're listening to The Water Cooler. One of the things about a country like Australia which looks forward to its best days rather than looks back on some golden age is the, the great optimism that comes from that. But a drawback perhaps is that we, we're less than assiduous about studying our own history. And I'm delighted to say that one of the projects I've been most proud to be involved in since I became Executive Director of the Menzies Research Centre was to support what is, I think, a very important five-volume history of Australia from the point of view of its ideas. It's written by a former academic who's also distinguished himself as a parliamentarian, David Kemp. David, I'm delighted that you're here today. Welcome. Thanks, so just to go back, people who are not familiar with this, I came to see you, I don't know how many years ago, and we talked about this project, and I think at that stage you wondered if it would ever get off the ground, but I, I felt really in my bones that we had to get this book published, or books, because it'll be five, won't it, by the time you've finished? It will, yes. And thanks to you, Nick, it has got off the ground. <laughs> I remember when I, I showed one of the drafts to John Hurst, the historian, mm. uh, he said, look, I, I really like what you've written, but it's very large. <laughs> I'm not sure whether a publisher is going to come at this. And so it really needed support. And um, the Menzies Research Centre has given support uh, for the first volumes. And I think that's been a terrific and indeed essential element in getting them out and getting them before the public. So, uh, excuse me, allow me to give a little summary of your first book and you can, you can stop me if I get it wrong. But, so the, f the first in the series was The Land of Dreams, which took us from 1788 up to around about uh, 1860. So from the founding of, uh, of settlement, of European settlement in Australia, uh, up till uh, just past the middle of the 19th century, 70 years or so. Uh, and, and you took it really from the point of view of the ideas that inspired this country. And that to me was an important corrective because so often people take a rather gloomy look at those early days. They look at it through, you know, the lens of colonialism, which is supposed to be bad, and it was a fatal shore and it was full of misery. Uh, but you've painted a much more optimistic picture in that first book, don't you? Well, it's a very much more positive picture. Uh, the starting idea of the books is that politics is a battle of ideas. I mean, Robert Menzies said that, John Howard said that. Uh, many political leaders have said that. And yet when you read about politics and the history of the country, you very often find the ideas are consigned to footnotes or uh, they're just boxed as a, something that's additional to the story. But the real story, in the view of many people, is the daily manoeuvrings that go on in politics. And there are many books of that kind around. Uh, whereas I've taken the view that Politics is really a battle about major ideas and that these ideas have consequences. Uh, people become their spokesmen, they underpin policies, they uh, are the basis for organisations that can attract people and membership and support uh, and ultimately, of course, they have consequences for the country in which those ideas are expressed. So th this series of books about Australia is really a history of what I think is the mainstream of ideas in Australian history, which is uh, what I've called liberalism, uh, liberal ideas that put the individual and humanity right at the centre uh, of the story. Uh, whereas conventional histories of Australia, I think to some extent, focus very much on what they think are the, the, the tabloid uh, features and human miseries associated with convictism and the convict system and the cruelty of that system to many people. Uh, but if you focus on that system alone, you really can't explain why Australia became the hugely successful country that it did. And it's a successful country because when the first fleet um, from the British government sailed into Sydney Harbour, it brought with it not only over a thousand convicts, but it brought ideas. It brought the ideas of the Enlightenment to Australia for the first time and the senior people on that fleet, Arthur Phillip and, and some of his major officers, uh, leading officers, were people who had imbibed those ideas. There was to be no slavery in Australia. Uh, the law was to be properly and objectively applied as far as they possibly could. Uh, the native people were to be treated well. 
it was the basis, Philip thought, of the founding of a great empire uh, in the continent of Australia. And very much a scientific experiment because at that stage uh, in European history, through the Enlightenment, uh, man was be- becoming uh, convinced that he could change his own destiny with his own hand by understanding scientific reason. And then, of course, you get the Industrial Revolution, great birth of technology, everything that follows. But Australia was occurring just at the, was settled just at the beginning of that, right? That period of great uh, enthusiasm about the power of man to change his own world. Yes, you would say it was settled in the mid Enlightenment period, uh, just after the British had been defeated in North America, just before the Americans put their constitution into place, just before the French Revolution. Uh, it picked up the ideas, as you say, of science. In fact, in 1770, when Cook and Banks and, and his uh, crew landed um, at Sydney, uh, uh, at uh, Botany Bay, and, and, and spotted the site of Sydney, uh, it was a scientific expedition. Uh, and Banks, of course, uh, then a, a, a young botanist, went back to England and became the president of the Royal Society for over 40 years, the leading voice of British science, and he became almost the godfather of Australia, and many of those who were set out, sent out later uh, were members of the Royal Society. They reported back to Banks, they wrote to him, they published books on Australia of a scientific character when they got back to Britain. Uh, they were desperate to see Australia built on the basis of human reason, which was at the centre of the Enlightenment. And probably without Banks, um, Lord Sydney would never have decided to send the fleet in the first place. So uh, it was very much the outcoming of a, a scientific expedition uh, by Cook and the Endeavour. Well, there's much we could unpack there, but we'll move on because that's the first book. And um, I'll encourage anybody who hasn't read it to go back and catch up to that point because we're now on the second volume uh, which we're launching this month a free country Australia's search for utopia 1861 to 1901 so just set the scene for me David 1861 uh, 70 odd 73 years since Australia was settled by by Europeans where had we got to by that point Well, two uh, fundamentally important things that happened that really determined the future character of Australia. Uh, One of those was the bringing of the liberal ideas of the Enlightenment to Australia through governors and uh, councils and, uh, and other scientists who were familiar with those ideas and saw Australia as a place for social experimentation. So that ideas like freedom of the press had been established in Australia, still very controversial in England uh, in in 1824. Uh, You had the ideas of bringing the common people into the government. Uh, By the 1830s, universal education was being debated then. Uh, The idea of a private enterprise economy based on uh, free um, trade and... um, uh, a government that had a limited role in economic life was beginning to become established, was well established by the 1840s. Uh, you had freedom of religion, separation of church and state. The very ideas, freedom of association that underpinned a liberal society were well understood and generally supported by 1850. And of course, it was at that time that the Britons who had come to Australia attracted uh, often by those ideas, uh, mobilised to end the transportation system and to establish a system of democratic government that is popularly elected governments accountable to the people. And by 1856, they had achieved that. Uh, and uh, so by 1860, we now have Australia liberal and democratic uh, with constitutions that reflected the results of the uh, British Uh, not only enlightenment, but ideas uh, that coming out of the uh, glorious revolution of 1688 and the Bill of Rights of 1689, all those ideas, including separation of church and state, were established in Australia in the late 1850s. And so 1860-61 is really the moment at which liberal democratic Australia sets sail. And the second volume is about, well, how did it go? You know, it's a report on its first 40 years, essentially, 
uh, and asks, well, did liberalism work in Australia? How far was it implemented? Uh, where did Australia stand at the end of those 40 years of Liberal Democratic government? Let's start talking about universities. So the first Australian university, 1850, was more than 60 years after settlement. And yet if you go back and look at the Pilgrim Fathers, the settlement of Massachusetts in the United States, I think within 17 or 18 years of settlement they already had what, what was to become Harvard University. Why that length of time? Why did it take Australians so long to build a university? And was it anything to do with the fact that there was a, a real conviction that you shouldn't let the churches set up the universities? There was certainly a very strong resistance to the kind of university um, entry requirements that existed in Britain. Oh, I should say England, because the Scottish universities were much more open. Uh, but in England, uh, you had to agree to the 39 articles and the uh, uh, requirements of the Anglican Church. The Anglican Church was an established church, and it wasn't until 1829 or thereabouts in Australia that really it was decided by the governors, uh, Governor Burke in particular, that that wasn't going to happen here. The Catholic population in Australia was a much larger proportion of the total uh, than it was in England, and it was just not going to be realistic to establish the Anglican Church. Uh, and you begin to get um, schools established, uh, and of course, I think the most important thing was really the um, huge upsurge in the emigration to Australia of uh, immigrants on their own account, the, the free immigrants, uh, not uh, convicts who'd served their terms, but Many of them, of course, convict families who'd been persuaded to come to Australia by the tremendously positive letters they were getting back from many convicts who had made a, were making a life for themselves and a bit of a fortune in Australia. Uh, but there was an upsurge in immigration. Uh, there was a, an attempt to assist free immigrants to come to Australia during that time through the late 1830s into the 1840s. And so... By 1850, you had really a, a large free population and uh, you had a population that was determined to build a better Britain. And I think it was round about mid-century there, 1850, that this idea really took hold. The campaign against uh, the convict system seemed to be bearing fruit. It hadn't quite succeeded by 1850. But there was the thought then that Australia really um, could have all the institutions of Britain but do much better because it would be without the class system, it would be without the culture of social deference, it would be without an established church, uh, it would have freedoms that Britain didn't have and it had, as it turned out, a much more educated population than the average uh, population in, in England. Uh, the Scottish population was the best educated in Europe, but the English population uh, was far behind. Uh, and Australia had attracted many of the most enterprising and the best educated. And so the establishment of a university just seems a realistic possibility by mid-century. And it's clearly settling in to be what we now think of as a middle-class society, wasn't it? That people had the opportunity to buy land, to accumulate or to, to earn land, in, in essence, and with some particularly in South Australia, where you had, I suppose, what we think of now as a Ponzi scheme, where people would come and have the promise of land. But it was that which drew them. And, and I'm very struck between the difference between that kind of settlement and, say, Argentina, where there were large, um, you know, large, large farms, large estates, and they attracted migrants from Spain, Italy and elsewhere, who were really there just to work. They had no expectation that they too could, you know, Get, accumulate land or set up their own business or become bosses. But in Australia, it seems that from the start, you know, the promise was there that if you worked hard, you know, you get ahead. I think America was much more in the minds of the immigrants than South America. And they could see the beginning of the Homestead Acts in the United States in the 1840s and, of course, Lincoln's Acts later on. Uh, whereas in Argentina... Uh, you ended up with tenant farmers. Uh, the land fell under the ownership of the wealthy. And one of the, of course, big political battles in Australia during that period was to stop that happening here. 
And so we had the fights between the free immigrants who'd come in who wanted farms and who foresaw the possibilities of agriculture. Um, uh, and on the other side, the squatters, the, the pioneering pastoralists who thought, well, they were first there, so the land should be theirs. And, and that battle went on for some decades, and it was quite a bitter battle. It was the same battle that occurred in the United States between the farmers and the cowmen, you know, the Oklahoma, mm-hmm. uh, the great song there, that, but they can be friends, those two groups. And, but it took some time to work that out in Australia. And, and I think the free immigrants really saw that there could be land here and you could avoid the terrible problem that had arisen in England, uh, which John Stuart Mill, the great liberal philosopher, pointed out, uh, that the land distribution in England was the result of history and violence and inheritance laws, and uh, it wasn't the kind of land distribution that you would think a free enterprise, basically liberal economy, would provide. And the immigrants in Australia, and there are some very outstanding leaders here, like John Robinson, who played an absolutely crucial role in getting that policy right, um, who saw the opportunity really to um, have what was called at the time, in some circles, free trade in land. And they managed to get that. Yeah, and you can see very strongly that sense of egalitarianism, which I think is the great, the greatest virtue of Australia. The thing that I appreciate when I came here as a settler, you know, 30 years ago, that, that you know, there was no deference given to, to, to people with landowners or anything like that. Everybody was on an equal level. I wonder if that bit of that came from the Irish. Of course, we've got this the story of Daniel Dennehy, who who coined the term the Bunyip aristocracy, you know, when the, the, the New South Wales Parliament was, was thinking about setting up a, an upper house, just an inherited upper a house, a bit like the House of Lords. He fought against this, didn't he? And it got enormous popular support, the idea that nobody, you call nobody Lord or Sir in Australia. It did, and the Irish Liberals are a very important part of that story. They, they come into the first volume, which is in the 1850s, where um, they were very preoccupied with land tenure in Ireland and uh, Duffy's Land Act in Victoria uh, in um, 1862 uh, really set out to provide the opportunity for the smallholder on the land. Now, it wasn't a successful piece of legislation entirely, but and nor, nor was any of the land legislation. It was a really tough thing to do because how do you start giving smallholders title to land when there has been no survey of the land? Uh, when nobody knew where the land was or what its features were, how on earth do you, you establish that sort of society? And, and that wasn't an easy thing to do, but eventually it was done. Because the economy was another thing that was was thriving. I mean, the economic growth in Australia uh, over over the, even those early years and later on to accelerate still further was based upon uh, really the science of the economy, which was new uh, when Australia was settled. What Adam Smith wrote what, a dozen, twelve, twelve years or so before Australia was settled, he wrote the Wealth of Nations, built on the idea that that free trade and enterprise would enrich everybody. And that spirit really drove Australia from the start, didn't it? It, it did. Um, uh, from the very early start of Australia, um, some of, one of the big arguments between Philip and his officers was whether the officers and soldiers could be granted land and whether they could set up their own enterprises. And Philip was quite against the military having access to land uh, because he thought that would set up a conflict of interest. It would set up a powerful private interest in the military which would prevent them pursuing the public role that they were supposed to do. And, of course, he was right, because when he went back to England, the officers got hold of the land and they got hold of trade and, and, and they set up uh, rum monopolies and... Um, uh, that led ultimately to their attempt to overthrow, and a successful attempt to overthrow Governor Bly in 1808. And that group of officers became what was known as the faction of 1808 and their descendants, John MacArthur uh, and his family and others. That was still being talked about in the 1850s, uh, the faction of 1808. And a lot of the politics was seen as being an attempt to finally beat the faction of 1808 and establish the smallholders and uh, an egalitarian society, not a, a class-based aristocracy, as the um, faction leaders of 1808 were said to want. 
Because mm. looking back with our eyes, we think of politics here as being Labor versus Liberal, left versus right. Because that it was that wasn't the way the argument was framed, was it? Back in the nineteenth century, we didn't have the Labour Party until the end of the nineteenth century, and the Liberal Party well not until the middle of the twentieth. So how how did that political divide break down, and how much of that was to do with free trade versus protectionism? Well, when you get to the post eighteen sixty period, um, the question arises: How do you achieve the nationalistic objectives of the Australian colonies? Uh, how do you build up Australia as a nation in its own right? And of course you didn't get a united Australia with all the colonies together in one country until 1901. You went through a whole process during the 1890s to lay the basis for that. But So you had the individual colonies through most of this period. And they developed very different ideas about the kind of nation that could be built in Australia. In New South Wales, the, the mother colony, it was often called, um, basically free trade became the philosophy, the ideology of Henry Parks, who was Premier five times and was the dominant uh, view of policy and government right through until um, almost Federation itself. In Victoria, you had a very different development uh, because in Victoria, the gold rushes and the gold diggers were a much more significant part of the Victorian establishment story than they were in New South Wales. And so the issue of what happened to the gold miners and whether they would then disperse after the surface gold was exhausted to other colonies or whether they could be kept in Victoria and whether Victoria could be made a particular sort of liberal and radical state following the Eureka Massacre and the, um, the, the Royal Commission into Eureka and the coming of universal suffrage, all of which happened during the 1850s. Um, that led in Victoria to the development of the idea that really you would develop the most industry and opportunities in Victoria if you protected Victorian developments against international competition. And so you got the rise of protectionism in Victoria. And it became the personal cause um, of the um, Scot, very anti-English Scot, David Syme uh, at the age. Yeah, the proprietor of the age became... And, and he became an extremely powerful voice in Victorian politics, so much so that if he wanted to send one of his senior um, members of staff to talk to the Victorian cabinet, the Victorian cabinet would immediately meet with them. And that would happen from time to time. And um, Syme would lecture the governments on how pernicious free trade was um, and how essential it was that you had um, Victorian industry and mainly Victorian manufacturing, of course, protected. And uh, he argued that would be the only way in which you would build up a strong national community in Victoria. And of course, we still have today the National Gallery of Victoria. Um, and the word national there reflects, in a way, that um, e exceptional nationalism that grew up within that colony. Uh, so we had um, in Victoria a very different approach to New South Wales. Uh, and, and that led to a massive split in liberalism in Australia uh, during the really the 1880s, 1890s, and it carried through after Federation between the free traders and the protectionists. Uh, the protectionists largely based in Victoria. Uh, the free traders largely led anyway from New South Wales, and that argument carried on in each of the other colonies. But Victoria and New South Wales as the two most populous states uh, or colonies uh, as we came, come into federation uh, really were the centres of those two points of view about what kind of nation Australia would be. And um, it's important not to forget the international context because at that time you had the rise of nationalism in Europe particularly to create Italian unity and German unity. 
and they were accompanied by writers, particularly in the German in Germany, um, arguing that Britain supported free trade because it suited the British Empire, but really protectionism was the wave of the future. Uh, and there were economists in England who thought that as well. And Syme was in close contact with them. Uh, he wrote a book to refute uh, the economics of Adam Smith and uh, the um, Anglo-Irish economist uh, Cliff Leslie uh, read the proofs and, and, and worked with him on this. Uh, and Syme's book was translated into European languages and was particularly of interest in uh, Germany and elsewhere and in the United States. Uh, so this was quite a major sort of intellectual environment within which the Australian debate took place. Um, and the, the rise of nationalism internationally had a number of what I think a liberal would see as quite pernicious effects. I mean, it, it had not only uh, the idea that economies could grow strong even if they were closed to international trade, that there were dangers in international trade, um, that Europe was far more advanced than the rest of the world and therefore that must have some sort of racial basis. The Americans had kind of failed essentially to cope with the freeing of the slaves after the Civil War and in the 1890s instituted the policy of segregation uh, of which the Australians were very aware. Um, China, particularly from Hong Kong, but also the provinces in China around Hong Kong, was very aware of the Australian developments and keen to take advantage of the continuing episodic gold rushes that occurred in Australia. And the Anglo-Saxons in Australia were very nervous about the way the ships kept arriving in Sydney Harbour and uh, Port Phillip Bay and elsewhere, bringing hundreds and thousands of Chinese potential immigrants to Australia, although the reality was most of the Chinese went home again because they'd come out to get money for their families. But race became a significant identity that was important at the time. Um, and then, of course, uh, events of the 1890s led to the development of a union movement heavily focused on socialist ideas and class identity as the way of keeping the union movement together and building it up. So the, a society uh, founded on the basis of universal equality, universal rights, the universal dignity of all people suddenly found ideas becoming very influential in the public debate, nationalism, class and race that had very little to do with, in fact, were quite in conflict. Uh, with those fundamental liberal ideas. And so by federation, by 1901, and if you go back even by the 1880s, it had become a real question, really, whether the liberal ideas of the foundation were going to be strong enough to resist these terribly powerful ideas coming from uh, the United States, uh, from Europe and from Britain saying you needed to um, uh, reconstruct society to make sure that workers were fully protected from exploitation because capitalism was much more exploitative in Europe, in England and in America than it ever was in Australia. And um, theorists were arguing that really the problem was capitalism and um, that was because of the class division that Marx had identified between the capitalists and the proletariat and really you needed to reconstruct society to, to bring the, the workers on. Now in Australia, they, those ideas had a very uh, difficult uh, road because there wasn't that clear class conflict. Mm. Uh, in fact, there was a lot of cooperation between the employers, the people who invest in capital and the people who work for them. And it took a long time and a lot of politics to divide Australia to the extent that you uh, yeah, I mean, could Lenin's, see a Labor Party actually emerging. Lenin himself, I guess this goes into the period of the third book, which is yet to come, but Lenin himself expresses frustration about Australia that, 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 that Australians don't seem to get the class war narrative and uh, don't seem to understand. The workers don't understand how, quite how oppressed they are. Yes, uh, that, well, that's right, because they, they, they were talking then um, to these, what we can, I think, now call from our 
sort of retrospectively and from our present perspective, identity groups. They were talking to these groups in terms of uh, realities that didn't exist in Australia in the same way that existed overseas, but nevertheless the idea of systemic exploitation and false class consciousness and all these things that were very difficult for the ordinary worker to see were nevertheless powering these ideologies of revolution in Europe. Mm. Um, and, and there was clearly an effort to bring these to Australia and, and in some ways quite a successful effort during uh, the period that the second book covers. So interestingly, the second book really, I think, has two quite distinct sides to it. Um, one is that it was the triumph of classical liberalism that Australia has never been and Australians have never been so free to pursue their own dreams as they were during that, that period of 40 years covered by the second volume. And, of course, by 1890, uh, it's generally agreed, I think, that Australians were by per capita the richest communities in the world. Mm. And Vic Victoria was probably the richest uh, part of the British Empire and probably one of the richest communities, if not the rich, wealthiest communities in the world. And Mel Melbourne being spoken of as being, you know, challenging New York and, and other Chicago. cities. Chicago. I mean, people used to compare Melbourne and Chicago. Um, and, of course, you can see why, because Chicago connects to its hinterland in many ways the same as Melbourne connects to the whole hinterland of Victoria, and so where Sydney is sort of surrounded by mountains. Yeah. And so the, the parallels were clearer. Um, and, and so Victoria um, and, and Australia uh, had thrived uh, on this um, economic freedom that had been established um, by 1860. Uh, and of course they'd done so also with the, the great help of British capital, uh, which was poured in by private investors in Britain and borrowed by Australian governments to support infrastructure, which was the sort of the great concrete problem of Australian development was actually getting infrastructure in place to allow access to the enormous amount of land in the continent and the resources that it had. So that's, that's one side of the story, the triumph of classical liberalism. The, the, other, the other side of the story is the rise of ideas which were utterly opposed to the liberal economy and the growth of private capitalism and private enterprise and saw the enemy of the long-term health of um, the, um, the population as being private property. And it came from Marx, but it came much more powerfully during these years from the American Edward Bellamy. Yeah, now this is this is a fascinating um, story, which I don't think is is widely known. People don't often read Edward Bellamy these days, but the book that he wrote, Utopia, uh, no. looking backward, looking backward. That's it, right. It, it was it, a utopian track. It was actually a novel. It was a science fiction novel, um, written supposedly in the year two thousand. He wrote it in 1987 when it was published. As a, as a picture of a, a time traveller. Somebody goes to sleep and wakes up That's in, right. in um, Philadelphia, I think. It's uh, the in, Philadelphia and of 2000. And it, 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 look, I think it's a fascinating book because it's, it, it's the kind of book which later the same story was told as a picture of dystopia, you know, in books like Brave New World by Aldous Huxley. But at that stage, they're loving this idea of a country where there's there's basically uh, no differential in wages. Everybody gets the same wages. If you can't work, the government pays for you. There's plenty for everybody. There's no well, competition. Well, there are equal incomes. I mean, that's, a, that's mm. an element of the Bellamy idea, that everybody would have equality of income. So it was, strictly speaking... Uh, our communist society that he was... Very much so, because the competition has been outlawed. You know, you're not allowed to compete. That's inefficient. So the government provides everything. You know, the government somehow magically provides the right number of paper clips. Including the, the right newspapers. Number, the newspapers. <laughs> and there are a couple of little glimpses in there, isn't there, which, which are quite prescient, the idea that... And this is 1880... 87, is that? Yeah, yeah. At that stage where he talks about music being pumped into everybody's home on a telephone... Uh, it's almost what we've got now on the iPhone, isn't yes. it? Yes, and he thought of credit cards as well. Credit cards, yeah. You needed a way of getting your goods from the government distribution stores. 
Yeah. Uh, that were the sort of what we would now think sort of large retail centres uh, and you went along with your credit card and you could get your, your goods. So this utopian idea is fascinating because a utopia based, I suppose it's an extension of the idea that man can create a, a world of his own and you get to this idea where you can actually create a better city that ruled, you know, abolish, you can abolish poverty simply by putting in better buildings and so forth. And this has enormous consequences. I mean, the city of Canberra, in a way, was based on that idea of a centrally planned utopia. Yes. I mean, the missing ideas were ideas like um, entrepreneurship, um, human motivation, uh, the desire of people after the age of 45 to work because, I mean, one of the problems with Bellamy's utopia was that it was ultimately very coercive for people who were allocated to occupations and um, not allowed to accumulate uh, their savings to buy luxuries. Uh, strict equality uh, was to be observed and the houses were all designed by the state. You could choose the design of your house, but you know it was going to be equal to everybody else's. Uh, and the view of motivation at the time, which you might say you know, was unrealistic in terms of its psychology, was that people would like this. They would feel that they had freedom because they had the choice of a middle-class lifestyle. And indeed, he thought, Bellamy thought, the middle class would embrace it. Uh, it wasn't to be established by revolution. It was just that everybody would see by reading his novel that this was the common sense way to go and that there would be a transition to socialism. Uh, that everybody would agree with. And, and the and popularity of this book, it was hugely popular. There's people setting up Bellamy societies around the country to take up the ideas. They were, and of course they were promoted by William Lane, who came from the United States um, and built up, uh, founded a Bellamy society in Australia and, and became his... The whole book was republished in the Queensland Worker, the Australian Labor Federation newspaper, and, of course, during the Shearer strikes, the 1890s, you had a library there and people were reading Bellamy and um, quite carried away by the idea. And it's, it's one of the rare examples of a novel that actually influenced the course of historical events. Uh, it was... Um, uh, I mean, you can't think of many novels that have actually done that. Um, uh, Uncle Tom's Cabin is possibly one... Um, Abraham Lincoln um, uh, said to the author, so you're the, the person who started the Civil War. Um, and uh, you had uh, Bellamy, and then later on, of course, in the 20th century, you have Ayn Rand mm -hmm. and, and during the Cold War. Uh, but there aren't many such novels. No, perhaps Jonathan Swift further back. Maybe Swift further back. Gulliver's right. Travels. Yep. It, it, for us to read this today, we can see where this all starts to go wrong in the following century. You've got the seeds in Bellamy's philosophy, I think, of both a fascist vision of society and a, a communist vision, haven't you? It's Ab absolutely, there. you do. And, and uh, I think it's important historically to know that each of the Labour leaders uh, read Bellamy. And you can see the ideas in Bellamy reflected in their public speeches and statements. I mean, one of the ideas in Bellamy uh, was that competition was finished, that it was no longer realistic, that what you needed was the cooperative society. And uh, this was the American perspective, that the economy was now dominated by huge corporations and trusts. And, and genuine economic uh, freedom had vanished. Uh, competition was no longer there. Now, that was an idea that Hughes came to again and again and again. The idea of a transition to socialism, a peaceful, hopefully peaceful transition to socialism, was one that Fisher talked about, that Hughes talked about, and ultimately, of course, Lang tried to implement in New South Wales in the 1930s. Uh, so, and it's possible to trace um, the way in which each of these national leaders came into contact with Bellamy. And the same is true for a very influential. Australasian, who wasn't an Australian but a New Zealander, uh, William Pember Reeves, uh, who essentially legislated the first compulsory arbitration legislation. And uh, that had a huge influence in Australia. And he wrote a very influential Fabian Society 
style book called State Experiments in Australia and New Zealand. Um, and uh, he outlined there uh, the impact of this legislation in New Zealand. That legislation attracted people like Tom Mann, who was later one of the founders of the British Communist Party to Australia. And um, Mann essentially set up the organisation, uh, grassroots organisation of the Labor Party in Victoria, uh, because he was very concerned that the Labor Party in Victoria was far too liberal and that it needed to commit itself to a complete reconstruction of society and the overturning of the economic system. And so Victorian uh, Labor, uh, alongside New South Wales Labor, became very, very radical and quite opposed to the liberal economic system. We should talk here about another, I think, overlapping uh, delusion, illiberal delusion, which, which arrives in Australia from overseas at that time. Uh, and that is eugenics, the idea of racial superiority that, that some races, you know, in Australia's case, the white British race, were somehow innately superior, that the ability of, of, of human beings was determined biologically. And, and that, I think it's important to say that that's international because it is creeping in in a lot of the thinking towards the end of the 19th century, isn't it? It is, it is, and it continues through as a quite significant influence on the left um, right through in the United States um, and in, um, in, in Britain even and, and Europe. And, of course, in the end, of course, it reaches its, uh, uh, the deepest abyss with Nazism. Uh, but it's an idea which John Christian Watson, the first Labor Prime Minister, was happy to articulate to the federal parliament in the first debates on white Australia. Uh, and he talked about the degradation of the population from... Uh, allowing immigrants to come to Australia who um, were non-white. Yeah, that's the idea that, you know, the, the stock, the racial stock could be diminished if you allow in too many uh, inferior people or if you allow, you know, degenerates in your own community to flourish. And, and, and that supported for a while some, I think, of the most extreme populist expressions uh, of the white Australia attitudes. Uh, the Liberals were, were very divided and torn on this, but I don't think they ever really... Ex I haven't come across the view that eugenics was accepted amongst... even by people like Deacon, who did accept the views of someone like Charles Henry Pearson, that there were superior and inferior civilizations, uh, But the view that there were superior and inferior people was one that I don't think they easily came at, and you don't find that expression... In no, their support for it, white Australia, and in that sense, if I can come to the defence of eugenics in Australia, it was a very, it was a positive eugenics, and, and I think this comes from the, the convict origins. You know, in the United States, they were very concerned that the criminal classes were growing in numbers, were breeding, and were undermining the, the stock. And yet, in a, in Australia, we couldn't really say that story because we started, if you like, from a criminal stock, and we got better. So eugenics sort of became an idea of how a super race could develop rather than one exists and it gets degenerated. Yes. It is yes. a slightly different narrative. But to move on from that to uh, something which we have to talk about, this is crucial uh, to the idea that this was a liberal society which everybody was equal, and, and that is the fate of the Aboriginal population. Um, tell me about about what was happening at that stage in the, in the second half of the 19th century and, and how much that was departing from the great liberal ideas that the colony was established. I think as a background to that, it's important to realise that, that when um, Philip and um, the British first arrived, the idea was that, the dominant idea was that uh, native peoples around the world were in a sense better peoples than those who'd come from Europe because they had been uncorrupted by civilization, And there was certainly the intention from the start that Aboriginal people in Australia sh sh should immediately become British citizens and that they should be treated equally by the law. And there was certainly a, quite a strong effort in the early decades of settlement uh, to enforce the law equally in relation to Aboriginal people and white settlers, and if there were cases of um, 
aggression against Aboriginal people by the settlers, then the settlers would be punished. Uh, that, unfortunately, was rarely the case. There's the famous case of the Mile Creek Massacre when Governor Gipps hung seven settlers for the massacre of an Aboriginal group. Uh, but the reality was that the governments of the day could not protect the Indigenous people effectively and the Indigenous people could not make use of the legal system uh, because um, they didn't speak the language, uh, they, they didn't have the same religious beliefs and the courts demanded that you swear on the Bible and give an oath. And uh, uh, So the system didn't work. And what you had from the 1840s onwards was the awareness that the Aboriginal people were under constant assault as settlement expanded. Uh, and ideas that really what needed to be done was to protect Aboriginal people. This is happening at the, at the frontier, if you like. It's happening it? at the frontier. Um, and you get protectorates for Aboriginal people established, say, in Victoria, around the Yarra River. Uh, they didn't last for even a decade. Uh, you had, as people moved uh, northwards into Queensland, uh, constant conflict. Um, whether they amount to frontier wars is a, you know, a semantic question, really. There were was, was terrible assaults and violence uh, and, of course, disease uh, wiped out very large numbers of Aboriginal people. So that by 1890, the population of Aboriginal people in Australia was greatly diminished um, there were some uh, children of um, uh, liaisons between settlers and Aboriginal people, but they were a relatively small group of people at the time. Uh, the governments took what you might call a, a benevolent or paternalistic attitude that really Aboriginal people couldn't cope with the uh, settlers and that you really needed to protect them with missions and uh, you, with... Uh, uh, reserves uh, and with special laws. And from a liberal point of view, what happened was that protection acts, particularly into the 20th century, in the early part of the late 19th, early 20th century, these protection acts, based on the idea of race, that was a specific foundation of these pieces of legislation would make special rules for Aboriginal people as against British and European settlers. Um, and they became, as we see as we move into the 20th century, essentially bureaucratic tyrannies, that Aboriginal people who had begun to use the institutions of Australia rebelled against. And these acts were finally overturned from the 1840s, from the 1940s and into the 1950s. Um, and, of course, by the 1960s, we know there was a, uh, a large national debate over equal citizenship and what was the citizenship status of Aboriginal people. And you had the emergence of Aboriginal leaders, very articulate people who could argue the case. And we're still dealing with the consequence of that. But... The period covered by this second volume is essentially the period of the failure of the Enlightenment policy towards Aboriginal people and the establishment of the protective regimes. And protective regimes are, by their very definition, uh, not uh, acknowledging the equal citizenship of Aboriginal people. So, or, or, or indeed acknowledging the capacity of Aboriginal people to actually uh, survive on their own exactly, initiative. Exactly. And, and of course... One of the things that, that becomes clear as you move into the 20th century is that there was emerging a great diversity in the circumstance of Aboriginal people that these acts simply didn't recognise. Mm. And I think it's so important that you've written about this with such, uh, such depth and frankness because it seems to me that this, this whole pattern of, of uh, contact and conflict between uh, European settlers in the Aboriginal community really starts in 1788 and continues right through to the current day. You know, a sort of misunderstanding, um, a sense that um, the response to Aboriginal um, disadvantage is to protect them in some way. 
uh, and in in way infantilise them. I think that that's a continuing cycle. I think it, I think it is to some extent, although I would put it slightly differently. I, I think that one has to acknowledge that significant progress has been made, uh, and and that progress really. It begins um, perhaps during the 1930s when you have significant Aboriginal leaders emerging, demanding equal citizenship rights. You have people like Paul Hasluck, um, a young journalist in the, in the 1930s, writing about the situation and determining to overturn the Protection Acts and the attitude of them when he goes into politics and doing so as far as he can as Minister for Territories, because Aboriginal Affairs were still under the states, but as Minister for Territories in the, Nat the Northern Territory uh, and as a leader of policy, overturning those acts and the emergence of more and more Aboriginal leaders. And so today, of course, we have the consequences of the, uh, the 1967 referendum and we have um, uh, now uh, a number of people with Aboriginal heritage in the federal parliament and an Aboriginal affairs minister of Aboriginal heritage. Um, and we have some of the brightest people in Australia with Aboriginal heritage constantly in our newspapers and, and debating policy. Th this has been a, a revolution over the last 50, 60 years in Australia in the position of Aboriginal people. And so I don't think we should conduct a current debate on the basis that nothing has changed. I mean, a lot has changed and we've moved beyond the original policy of Enlightenment uh, attitudes. We've moved through the protection era. Uh, we've moved through the era of recognising Aboriginal identity and putting that at the forefront. And we're still seeing that debate continuing on, but we're also seeing enormous numbers now of Aboriginal people uh, going through to year 12, going into vocational education and training, going into the universities, um, entering the professions, um, much more to be done there. I'm not saying that that that, that um, positive progress has worked its way through the community yet, but, but we really have seen Australians on all sides, um, Aboriginal people with, I would say, great goodwill, and the general community with growing goodwill, and I would say today great goodwill, uh, seeking to address the consequences of what occurred in Australia during the 19th century. Um, before we leave the period which your book covers, taking us up to Federation in 1901, let's talk a bit about that rise in a sense of national identity and nationalism, which, which I think comes to a a crescendo in in 1888 with the celebration of a centenary of Australian settlement and there's big celebrations around that I think the commissioning of songs and uh, and so forth isn't there that start really to express Australia as a nation not just a, a group of disparate colonies I think the the nation's political leaders during the 1880s were beginning to become concerned that while there had been a major achievement in the building of civilization you know, of the European kind on the continent, and that's symbolised by the picture on the cover of the book, which is the Great Exhibition Building in Melbourne, uh, where marvellous Melbourne was really signalling to the world that it had arrived and that Australia could talk to the world and, and was able to present to the world things that the world would be interested in. Uh, but we had... Some states that were very protectionist, some states that were free trade. There were big debates over uh, what the direction of Australia should be. Parks was pessimistic about whether or not it would be possible to bring the colonies together in one nation. Uh, there was concern over the expansion of the German and French empires into the Pacific at the time, particularly Germany into New Guinea. Uh, and so there was a growing interest in seeing whether Australia had the capacity to actually convince the colonies that they should set up uh, a national government and surrender some of their sovereignty to national concerns. And it took a long time to do that, uh, right through the 1890s. Uh, but 
they were successful. And, of course, one of the things that happened then was that most of the people, most of the citizens of Australia uh, or subjects of the Queen in Australia at that time were born in Australia. That wasn't the case in 1850 right. or 1860. Uh, and, in fact, it's, it's a very interesting fact that I squeeze in here that when the first Victorian Legislative Assembly was elected almost on universal suffrage, by, in 1856, only four, four out of the 60 members of the Assembly had been born in Australia. Most of them were people who had come from Britain or Ireland to Australia or Scotland, uh, including Scotland. And um, they were people who had come with that idea of building an Australia that was better than Britain yeah. and better than America and avoiding the mistakes of the two. Mm. By 1890, the Australians were taking over that project. The born in Australia, Australians were taking over that project. They were taking over the imperial project in Australia, but more importantly, they were taking over the liberal project and they were wondering how to deal with these social reconstructionist ideas that were coming from overseas and wondering whether they could get an Australian nation into place before, uh, while they were still able to do so. And, and I argue in the book that Australia was established as a nation at the last possible moment when it probably could have happened because if you go through the debates of the conventions you find that one of the biggest worries of the Australians outside Victoria and New South Wales, and particularly outside Sydney and Melbourne, was that an, the nation of Australia would be ruled by Sydney and Melbourne. The well, that didn't happen. <laughs> the, rest of the country would be forgotten. And um, somehow or other, you had to convince those states that the minorities that weren't living in Sydney and Melbourne but scattered around the country. Together they added up to a lot, but individually they are minorities, would be properly protected by the new constitution, which of course is why we've got the Senate. That was the big, the big argument as to why it was okay to come into a nation. Uh, and, uh, but on the other side of politics, the Labor Party was very ambivalent about the nation of Australia. And in New South Wales, they were utterly opposed to federation. And they expelled members of the Labor Party. The organisation of the party in New South Wales expelled members who supported federation uh, because they were worried that the unions wouldn't have any influence at the federal level. They felt they'd gained, they were gaining influence at the state level, but they were worried they mightn't be strong enough to influence the federal government and that the Liberals would be up, up and away uh, at the federal level running the country and the unions running around at the state level. Now, that, of course, didn't happen because the Labor Party was able to find its base, electoral base, during that first decade and um, make itself into a power at the federal level. Uh, but uh, it was a... The 1990s were a remarkable period in which that argument was fought out. And those, th those Labor parties all supported greater centralisation... They wanted, and, and they began to campaign for centralisation almost as soon as the party came into existence. The Labor Party won its first majority election in 1910. In Britain, it was 1945. In 1910, the Labor Party was already planning a referendum to centralise powers in the Commonwealth. That referendum was put in 1911 and defeated. But they didn't stop and there are a number of referendums that followed that, all seeking to centralise powers. Now, imagine if a centralist Labor Party had tried to argue that we needed a federation. I don't think that federation would have been possible yeah. compared to the circumstances of 1900 and, and particularly during the 1890s. So that's why I argue that that was probably the last moment where the nation of Australia could actually have come into existence because the Liberals were still dominant 
and the Labor Party was still in its infancy. And so the ideology of centralisation was weaker then than it was to be in the coming decades. Well, I think that's where we leave a free country. We anticipate uh, the next volume, which is going to take us through, I think, a very difficult period for the 1925. Idea. And, uh, and, and, and thence into the 20th century with everything that followed. David, I want to thank you for uh, putting these books together. They are, they are terrific. You've, you've done a great service in filling in this history of ideas, which uh, if we don't understand it, we don't understand the country in which we live and where it's going, uh, and for explaining the Liberal Project. Thank you very much. I should also thank our friends at the IPA here in Melbourne who've lent their studio for this podcast. And I'm looking forward to coming back and exploring this in more detail in the future. But in the meantime, thank you, and I can't recommend this book highly enough. Thank you very much, Nick, and thank you very much to the Menzies Research Centre for making the books possible. Thank you for listening to that edition of The Water Cooler. If you enjoyed it, please give us five stars and visit us on menziesrc.org.